We're continuing our conversations in Philippians. And uh, actually, uh, I started this uh, a few weeks ago. Then we got then we got the power outage, and uh, so I never never was able to finish it. Um, but I'm going to go back and talk about Philippians chapter two, and we want to talk about unity and humility. Unity and humility, not our favorite topics to talk about. I totally get that. I appreciate that. Um, so why is it why is it difficult for us to talk about it? Why is it that unity and humility are not our favorite topics? Well, can I suggest it's because it's contrary to our flesh? We don't like to be held accountable to unity. We don't like to be humble. I mean, when I think of unity, I don't know about you, but when I think of unity, what it means, my my initial thought is that I have to submit to someone else. I have to come under somebody else's desires or, 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 or wants and giving up maybe some of my own. Maybe my own identity is at risk when I'm in, in unity with somebody else. You see, because I like to be independent, and you probably do too. I, I like to be on my own where I can live according to my own wants and desires because when I do that, it's comfortable for me because I can be selfish. Can you be selfish? Do you have selfishness in your spirit and your life? I think we all do to a degree. So unity threatens our selfishness. And what this means is that we can't be all about me all the time. Think about that for a minute. Unity says I can't be all about me because sometimes I have to put somebody else in in front of me or above me. And that's how unity gets connected with humility because true humility is the opposite Listen, humility is the, I'm not making up words now, humility is the opposite of being prideful. Humility is the opposite of being prideful. And we like our pride. We like our pride because it's about me and it's who I am and I'm prideful, I'm proud of my accomplishments and things of that nature. And being prideful does not always mean you're obnoxious. You know, we think of the proud person, the arrogant, the boastful person as the obnoxious person. But we can be prideful and not be obnoxious. And what do I mean by that? You see, because pride really is the attitude of everything's about me and my little circle of influence. For example, when I'm in a conversation with somebody, you can tell a prideful person because when you're in a conversation with someone, the conversation without without issue becomes about them it all they want to talk about themselves they want to talk about who they are they want to talk about their accomplishments they want to talk about how good they are they don't really they're not really concerned about you <laughs> they're not really concerned about what you're going to say because it's all about them that's an, that's a good indicator that you're dealing with a prideful person so to be humble as Jesus was and is, it's not easy. It's not easy to be humble because it goes against our flesh and everything that we do. So even though what we're going to talk about today is difficult because we're talking about unity, we're talking about humility, remember that the underlying theme of Philippians that Paul's bringing to the church of Philippi is a theme of joy. This is a joyful theme that that he talks about in the whole book. So how are we going to get joy talking about humility? And how are we going to get joy talking about unity? 
Well, bear with me. Let's figure this out. Let's walk through this together. First of all, let's read our text. Stand with me if you read our text, if you would today. It's a relatively long text, but it's okay to stand up for a minute. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 6, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text today. It's a lengthy one. Lord, there's a lot of meat here. There's a lot for us to digest, but I pray God, you just give us wisdom and give us discernment. Lord, as we get into your word and we preach the word that you have for us today. And I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it's interesting. Um, the Bible is a living word. That means that every time you read it, something new pops out of it. I prepared this message about a month ago. <laughs> but as I've been going back and restudying it, man, new things are popping out all the time in this word. Why is that? Because it's a living word. It's a Holy Spirit living word of Jesus. It's the word of God. And so when you read something, that's why the Bible's never boring. That's why I recommend you read the Bible a lot. Keep reading it, even if you read the same passages over and over, because new things pop out all the time. And it's really encouraging and it's really fun. This week, however, the elements we want to talk about are unity and humility. These are the two themes that are important of this passage here. So let's talk about unity first. Unity first talks about Philippians chapter 2, verses, the first two verses. Let's read it again. Therefore, if any of you have encouragement from being united with Christ, there's that word, united is, is, is unity, with Christ, if any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then Paul says, make my joy complete by being in unity, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. That's kind of a definition of what unity is. So Paul here is defining the joy that he receives from this. He receives joy from the church of Philippi, because they're like-minded in their sense of unity. Unity and joy, they, they, they go together to some degree. And how do they come together? Well, when we find that we're in unity with another person, there's joy there. When we are in unity with our family members, unity with my wife and my husband, spouses, children, there's joy in the family. Unity promotes joy. 
And joy results in a positive reaction and, and, and also a positive accomplishment that the more joyful you are, here's the reality, the more you get done. Think of this. The more joy in a person's life, the more productive they are. A grumbler doesn't get much done. A grumbler is too busy worrying about themselves, thinking about themselves, grumbling and complaining, and they don't do a lot. But a joyful person gets something done. Isn't it kind of interesting to think about that? And you know, Paul wasn't the only one that prayed for unity in the church. I just want you to know that. Let's go back. Turn to John chapter 17. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 17, beginning at verse 20. And let's find out that who else prayed for unity. Who else prayed for unity in the body? Jesus. Jesus did. Let's read this. John chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. This is Jesus praying for his disciples, and then praying for us that follow the the disciples. He says, my prayer, Jesus's prayer, is not for them alone, which is the disciples. He says, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through the disciples' message or through their message. Verse 23, or verse 21, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you have gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Now, if you compare that prayer with the the prayer that Paul prayed, just we read earlier, do you see how similar they are? and that they're praying for unity in the believers. Jesus and Paul both pray for unity because it's only through unity will God's purposes be accomplished in the world. It's only through the fact that we're going to be together in our mindset, together in our desires, together in our goals, that God's will will be done. So think about this for a minute. How do you see God having joy when his will is done in your life. How much joy do you think God gains when he sees you and I working together in the kingdom to build his kingdom? You see joy there versus stress or strife. If you and I are fighting about something, do you think that brings joy to the Lord? No, it doesn't bring joy. It brings frustration to him because he's saying, will you guys just get along and focus in on what's important and work together? And when you work together to build my kingdom... You're going to be productive and more are going to come into the kingdom and it's going to be a joyful kingdom. This is awesome. This is where I like it. And this is why I like where this message is going because I can see the benefit of what, what, of what unity brings. And unity just doesn't strip me of my identity and make me become like you. That's not the point at all. But unity brings us together in Christ. And it makes us unified together with one like-mindedness. And what's so important to know is that this is not organizational unity, like we just are, we're going to get our churches together as an organization. No, this is a what he's talking about is a spiritual unity that comes only through a personal relationship. See, because religion doesn't promote unity, religion. 
on its own doesn't promote unity. In fact, religion separates and polarizes based upon denominational and religion and in religion differences. Because we have different interpretations or we have even to some point false teachings as Mark already alluded to this morning. And that's why Satan loves religion. Satan loves religion. Because religion doesn't bring unity in the body. Satan loves people that religiously go to church for the sake of going to church. But not to be unified with the body of Christ. He loves it when we make church and we make religion a dogma or a legalistic effort because he thrives. Satan thrives in legalism. He thrives when people are going to church just to say they're they're in church because I will tell you guys, even though as much as I believe in going to church, going to church does not make the Christian. Going to church does not make the Christian any more than sitting in your garage is going to make you a car. You can sit in your garage all night long and you're not going to be a car come morning. And you can sit in the church all day long and you're not going to be a Christian in the morning unless you have a relationship with Christ and then there's a unity in the body of Christ. I talked about this briefly the last time, but let me bring this point up again. A good example of how religion doesn't bring unity is the life of Saul who became Paul prior to his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Saul, at that time, was the up-and-coming religious leader of the pharisaical world. He was the Hebrew of Hebrews. He was well-trained. He was young. He was energetic. He had it all together, and he was going to become one of the major leaders of the Pharisees. And he was so religious in this, he was out to destroy those heretics called Christians there because it was upsetting the pharisaical apple cart. And so Paul, Saul was on a mission to go out and hunt them down and persecute them and to martyr them, actually. And he was on the road to Damascus on one of his missions, and Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light, and he said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And this was, this was Saul's, his conversion experience. So it wasn't that Paul or Saul was so religious. What happened, excuse me, what happened is that Paul was converted in this encounter, and it wasn't about his religion. It was about his relationship. So what changed him was a true relationship with Jesus, and that's what allowed him to be in unity with Christ, and then also the ability to bring others into that unity, because once he was unified with Christ through a conversion experience, not through a religious experience, he then could become the teacher that the world needed. See, the old philosophy is you can't give what you don't have. If you don't have unity with Christ, then you can't give unity with Christ. If you just have a religious mindset and you just have a knowledge of God, you really can't be much of a kingdom builder because you don't have a relationship with Christ. And with the relationship comes unity with Christ and then with others. It has to be in that order. What was Jesus' prayer? John chapter 17, verse 20, he says, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. 
not to become one. Now, there's a subtle difference here. What's the difference of becoming one and being one? To become one would be considered a one-time event. It happened sometime in the past. But to be one with someone is an ongoing identity that never has an end point. But it's a continually growing process of being one. And that's the way Jesus and his father were and the Holy Spirit. They were one at all times. They didn't put it on and off. They were one at all times. And that's the unity that we're talking about. This is a type of unity that's based on a common relationship with Christ. And the end goal, goal is to do everything that is pleasing in his sight. And there are no separate and independent agendas here. But everyone has a single purpose, a single goal, and that is that we are to gain the character of Christ. And we're to, um, we're to continue to grow in that, in that humbleness and that unit, unity with him. So what does it mean to be unified? When we're in unity, our wills and our desires are the same. And that we're not struggling with each other anymore. We're not putting myself in front of you, or you're not putting yourself in front of me, because we're working together to achieve a common goal. And this doesn't come, again, this doesn't come from organizational meetings and conferences. This doesn't come from that. It comes from our having a relationship with Christ. So that now we truly have a, a heart of godly unity in our life. But I want to stop here for a minute. Because this kind of unity, it sounds so idealistic. And it, it may seem so unreal. But let me, tell, let me tell you what it's not. You and I are never going to agree on everything. So unity doesn't mean that you have to take on, become, be like Mike. <laughs> I'm not, it's not saying that. I'm not saying that I'm trying to preach here so you all are like me. I'm saying that we are to preach here so we can all become like Christ. And so we can have agreements and we can have disagreements. That, that kind of unity, um, it's impossible to have exact ideals the same way because we're different people. The fact that God gives you a free choice and a free will, and he gives me a free choice and a free will, it means that we're going to have differences of, of opinion every once in a while. And that's okay. That's okay as long as we have the spiritual discernment and the wisdom and the maturity to be able to accept there are going to be some things that we're going to agree to disagree on as long as they're not moral or compromise the word of God. You can have a different approach to something. You can have a different idea about worship, about raising your hands and not raising your hands or, or whatever. It's okay. It's okay. I, I, you don't have to do everything like everybody else. If, you, if that was a mindset, that's where Satan wins because he will convince us and he will bring unity and destruction in our unity because it's not about you being forced to be like me or to be like anybody else. That's not the kind of unity that we're talking about. Let me give you an example of how two biblical men disagreed but never lost their unity. I'm going to talk about Paul and Barnabas. We know the story. Paul and Barnabas were two of the early evangelists. Okay, Barnabas was a counterpart of Paul. And they were both very godly men. And they were devoted to spreading the good news. 
And in this particular situation, they were traveling together on a mission and they had a, another person with them, a man named John Mark. And for some whatever, some halfway through the mission or some point in the mission, for whatever reason, we don't know why, but John Mark decided to leave and he left them, deserted them in Paul's opinion. And, uh, so they completed the mission without Mark with them. So now let's fast forward. Mission's over. Now they're planning another trip. And uh, they're talking about where we're going to go, who's going to go with us, and so forth. And, and John Mark comes up in the conversation. And Paul says, I don't want to take him this time because he deserted, us, he deserted us last time. And Barnabas says, no, no, I want to take John Mark because he's a good guy. And they had such a strong disagreement over this that they parted ways. That John went, uh, I'm sorry, um, Barnabas took John Mark with him and Paul took Silas and they went different directions. So what happens here? What happened here? I think this is the point. Satan was thinking that he was going to be destructive here because he was going to get these two godly men to disagree and cause all kinds of problems. And they were going to get competition between them and he was going to destroy the work of the gospel. That's what Satan was planning on this. Just so you know, I want you to know that later in life, John, Mark, and Paul became great friends. And, and they did, they did restore that relationship that Paul didn't have, that disagreement up there. But what happened here is that what Satan was using to slow down and to destroy, um, God took to replicate and duplicate and grow the kingdom even more so. Because God was not going to let Satan win on this one. And how did this happen? What was so important here is that the reality is that both Paul and Barnabas continued to depend on God in their mission. Yes, they had a difference of opinion about John Mark, but they didn't lose their perspective. They moved forward peacefully, even if it meant parting ways, and they were okay with that. So in matters of opinion and practical application, they differed. But in matters of doctrine, they were united and they were together and they didn't lose a step. In fact, it doubled the effectiveness of the kingdom. So both men saw how important this unity was because the most important thing was is that their unit, their disagreement didn't break their unity. That proves the fact that we can have a disagreement and still be in unity together. Does that make sense? We may not agree on procedures and opinion and, and different opinions, but we can disagree on some di- different things as long as our differences are not based on biblical truths or moral standards for the sake of perceived unity. And this is important for us to realize because there are some, we've already talked about it, it's a false teaching. There's some churches here that are promoting some false doctrines. So, how do we handle this? What is my responsibility as a pastor of a Bible-believing church to deal with a pastor that's not so much a Bible-believing church? Do I lock arms with them? Do I associate with them? Do I have to get on the same mission with them? No. Not if they're not teaching the Bible. Not if they're going down a path that is compromising God's Word. I'm not going to get in a relationship with them. And it's not that we're better than them. No, we're standing to what the Bible says. And not going to compromise God's word based upon a perceived unity in the community. I'm going to, I'm going to step apart. I'm going to step away from that. And that's okay. That's, there are some things that we have to disagree on and stay away from. And that's one of them.
for sure. That's one of them. But let's go back and talk about joy and unity for a quick minute here. Think of as a parent, which most of us are, what brings the most joy to your heart when you consider your children? Well, I know as a dad, the thing that makes me the happiest is when my children are in unity. When my children are loving each other, they're embracing each other, they're standing up for each other, um, they're praying for each other, loving each other. Those are all good things. And that's, that's part of what it means to be in unity is that even though we have different personalities and different strengths, which my children have, I don't expect them to all be the same. I don't expect Summer and Tyler and Aubrey and Jenna to do the things all identical because they're different. They have different gifts. And I, I think it's awesome when I see them operating in them. But what gives me joy is when they're in unity, even with their gifts are different. And I think God looks at churches the same way. He's not trying to make us all little robots. He wants us to be using our gifts, but in a unified manner. That we have a common goal and a common direction, even though we may not agree on every little detail. That still brings joy to the Lord. Because he's made us different. And why is that? Because our strengths make us stronger. You know, the hardest thing is that it's difficult to recognize a person's individual weakness. Do you know that? If someone points out a weakness to you or you, if you recognize one of your own, it's difficult for us to embrace that. I agree. I, I get that. Because it makes me feel vulnerable. It appears to be a threat to me when I'm finding my weaknesses, especially when I see my weaknesses to be somebody else's strengths. There's a threat there potentially. So unity, I think, can be defined in a way that says something like this, that when I can recognize my weakness and accept another person's strength to make up for my weakness... I can be in unity with that person because they're strong where I'm weak. And I can, and together we become stronger. Does that make sense? And I think that's a great definition of unity because in that situation, there's no struggle for credit or recognition. Rather, there's a celebration of, of success no matter who achieved it. No matter who got, who got the win, we as a team win and grow together. That's teamwork. And a team that's unified is a team that wins. In athletics, the same way. In our spiritual life, the same way. In our family life, the same way. So unity results in a survival and a strength to grow no matter what Satan would want to bring against us. No matter how he would want to distract us. And that's why Satan is doing everything he can to destroy the unity of Christian families and the unity in Christian churches Because he knows that if he can do that, if he can get us to fight amongst ourselves over stupid things that are inconsequential, that he'll win. And that's not unity. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 2, and he says in verse 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility... Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And now we're getting to the source of what makes true disciples of Jesus to be different than the world situation. What we're describing here is what it means to be humble. 
So now let's move on to the next, the second point of humility. Humility. And let me say this. Unity is not possible without humility. Unity is not possible without humility. And why can I say that? Well, there was unity in heaven well, a long time ago, before man was even created, there was great unity in heaven until pride entered the realm of heaven through Lucifer, the archangel. And pride here in this situation is the opposite of humility. Pride is the opposite. And let me just share with you real quickly the account of how, of, of how Satan fell from heaven. He was perfect. There was great unity in heaven until pride raised its ugly head. And let me just read what happened. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 15 and 17. He's talking, this is the Ezekiel prophet talking about what happened in heaven. He says, you were blameless in your ways. He's talking about Lucifer. Lucifer was the, the, probably the best angel created, the first angel created, maybe the, the worship leader of heaven probably. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you, so God, I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God, and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. So here it is. Ever since that day when sin and the sin of pride entered heaven, that was the beginning point of all man's sin. Really, that began, that was the beginning point. It wasn't, it didn't begin in the Garden of Eden. It really began, it really began in heaven when Lucifer allowed pride to enter his heart. And that point, unity was broken in the heavenlies. And that's why pride is one of the first things that we must deal with. Pride is one of the first things that we must deal with in our life. So let me ask you a question. If I were to rank sins, as the most important to the least important, where would pride fall? Where would pride fall? Often we think pride is one of the minor sins. Often we think it's one of the things up here that I can do a lot of other bad things. But can I just say that by, by looking here further at this text, let's look back at our text again. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. You see, Paul says that we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition. What does that mean? Do you recognize selfish ambitions in your life? Do we have them? Absolutely we do. Do you see that humility is the key word here in this point? That humility that we value others above ourselves? We've already talked about the opposite of humility is pride. So pride would say that we would value ourselves higher than others. Humility says we value others higher than us. Pride would say we value ourselves higher than others. So it appears here that if we're, if we're going to evaluate where is this pride of sin, where, how do we rank it? I would say that sin would be the first, or pride would be the first sin, the, the, the most damaging sin. Because pride comes into the heart of a person before they ever think about murder before they ever think about lying or stealing or getting something from somebody else, envy or sexual immorality. It's all about me. If I didn't have that prideful 
desire to gain something that wasn't mine, then I wouldn't steal, that I wouldn't lie about it, that I wouldn't envy, and the list goes on and on. So clearly, I think the sin of pride, the thing that values myself higher than another person, is really why that has to top the list of sins. So how do we promote humility in our lives as an act of creating unity? How do we do this? Well, my Bible commentary says it this way. Humility is a primary part of Christian unity because it is a key quality of Jesus' character. The Bible's God-centered view of humanity and spiritual salvation places the highest importance on humility. See, one of God's primary requirements of his people, recorded in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, God says, He has shown you, O mortal man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God lives in us if we're saved, if we have a relationship with Christ. And it is only through a, 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 a humble perspective can we honor others over ourselves. And this is the very nature of unity because without humility, unity is not possible. And it will be each person seeking what's best for them rather than seeking what's best for the kingdom of God. So let's go back to our text in Philippians chapter 2 again. And let's read verses 5 through 11, but let's take them slowly. Beginning at verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. See, Christ was the perfect example of what it means to show humility in every aspect of his life. Verse 6 and 7, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the human likeness. Recognize how difficult this was. Jesus was fully man and fully God at the same time. And I know we can't comprehend that. I just can't get my, my, my mind around that. But Jesus willingly left everything he had in heaven, all of his privileges, all of his authority, all of his honor, he, he left it in heaven so that he could become a humble man. He could come down and become part of his creation. And I don't think we're ever going to be able to comprehend that until we're in heaven ourselves. I don't think we can be able to do that. Philippians 2.8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, what's so significant about this? Because if Jesus wouldn't have humbled himself to this point, that he couldn't have been one of us, and therefore he never would have qualified to be the sacrifice for our sins. You see, I, I love this over here in the corner. We have the cross, and we have a manger. And, and notice where the manger is at. The manger has to come before the cross. The manger had to bow itself in humility in front of the cross before anything else could happen. Jesus had to humble himself by becoming a baby before the cross can have any significance. 
That's how, that's how important humility is. That's what, that's why Jesus is the perfect example because he shows us, he proves to us how important humility is versus being prideful. Because he had, he had every right to be prideful. Because he was everything. He was the creator. And he gave all that up to be one of us. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him. This is, this is the benefit of being humble. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as Jesus humbled himself, that, that put him in a position for his father to glorify him. If Jesus would have tried to glorify himself, it wouldn't have worked. He had to humble himself to become a man like you and I. And only as we humble ourselves do we give God the position to honor us and to grow us up and to acknowledge us and to bring acknowledgement to who we are through him. But if I do it on my own, it won't work. As Jesus willingly accepted a low and humble position through his earthly life, his heavenly father was able to uh, uh, anoint him and exalt him to positions of highest authority and honor in heaven for all time, for all that, for all eternity. Jesus, Jesus accepted his low position in humility. God exalted him to the highest place. Jesus willingly gave up his heavenly authority and take on the battles of sin and temptation and the attacks of Satan in total humility. And as he did that, his father bestowed all authority to Jesus. As Jesus was willing to die the cruelest death on a cross, sacrificing himself for all mankind, God the Father was lifting him up from the grave so that every man in all creation would bow down to him. Do you see the trend? Do you see the pattern here? Jesus was willing to endure the lies and accusations of men without a fight. And God the Father would have every person that, that, that slandered Jesus, every person that lied about Jesus, every person that discredited Jesus. At the end, every person will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what happens. When you humble yourself before the Lord and you take on the authority or you take on the, the, the attitude of humility as Jesus did, God will give you the authority through eternal life thereafter. I love that. Jackie, would you come please? I love the fact that humility always wins. Pride always loses. And I'm not talking about a False humility, and I think we all know what that is. I'm talking about true humbleness, where I really get off my high horse, and I really am willing to go the extra mile for somebody else or for another, for, for a church or whatever. So what do we learn from here? What, what's the takeaway from all this? That in this, we are to take on the very nature and character of Christ, and when we do that, that we willingly take on the humble things in life and allow God to lift us up as he lifted Christ up because we are a joint heir with Christ. We are adopted into the family of Christ 
And what God did for his son Jesus, he'll do for you and I if we take on the character of Christ. And I know this is hard for us. I know it's hard for, for, for our natural flesh. Because our natural flesh is contrary to, humi- to humility and unity. We like to be on our own. We don't like to be accountable. I know that. That's why this sounds idealistic. That's why these messages appear to be so self-righteous that we can't attain to them. And I'm saying we must attain to them. I'm saying we don't have a choice in the matter. If we're going to be godly, we need to take on the humility of Christ. And we need to do this. We need to lay our life down. And I pray that we can do that. I pray that we will find our identity being united with Christ and with each other. That I truly will lift you up. I will put myself down to lift you up in humility and in unity. And that we will truly find joy in serving one another. That we will have a humility in our service toward each other. Listen, guys, I I think that this is so important because it's only through unity and humility will the world see us as different. Because the world, this isn't the world's message. The world's message is, and I don't mean this in a negative way, make America great again. And I'm all about making America great again. But there's a prideful precision in that too. Do you see that? I'm all about being a patriot. I'm all about that. But it's not about me. It's not about America. It's about, God, I want to be unified. I want to be humble with each of my brothers and sisters in Christ so that we can make God's kingdom great again. That we can build God's kingdom in this world, not my kingdom and not the kingdom of America necessarily. Yeah, America is a great beacon of light to the world. I get that. But we've left that. We're, we're moving away from that. We're not that great country that we once were when we were a godly country. We're moving into a very woke and a very selfish and a very liberal agenda, which is all about me. And that's not what God desires. And so if we want to be different to the world, if they want the world to know we're different, then we need to come with a humble approach, a unified approach with the kingdom of God as our goal. Does that make sense? Are you willing to work with me on this one? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day today. Lord, we just thank you for this word of what it all means. And God, this is a tough word. I get that. This is not easy. But Lord, it never, you never said it was going to be easy. <laughs> you never said that we didn't have to work for something. Yeah, we need to work this out. And we're going to find in future works, future weeks, that we're to work out our salvation. Well, this is part of it. We work out our salvation in fear and trembling through our humility and through our striving to be unified together as a body of Christ and not about me and not about this church. It's about Jesus. It's about being unified with relationship with you and you alone. So I pray, God, that you will just give us that revelation knowledge. You'll give us the ability to stand strong in that area. Lord, you'll bring us true humility. God, help us to understand what that is, truly what that means. And it doesn't mean we self-abase ourselves, and it doesn't mean we do without just for the sake of doing without. God, no, that's not it. That's false humility. We just really humble ourselves before you. And we ask you to be king of our lives. So 
that we really can make you the Lord of our life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me if you will. Let's sing the song that Tom and Jack here playing. that verse right before this you know how we do this guys you know how we do this is that we ask the Lord to open our eyes that we open up our eyes and wonder and that we ask him to show us who he is and when I can understand who Christ is then I can begin to see how unworthy I am and how worthy he is there's a lot of strength in this song there's a lot of power in this song that we're asking him to fill us with his heart. 
We're asking him to lead us in his love. And that when I do that, then I'm taking on the nature of Christ. And it's not about me. It's about how I can look towards him. And now he can show me his wonder and his goodness. Amen? Let's go with that this week. Let's take that this week into our life. Father, I just pray that you would just show us today yourself. And throughout this week, God, in the many areas of our life, that you would, that we would just be, that you would show up and that we would just have wonder in our hearts about, man, that's God. That's God doing that. How worthy you are, God. How worthy you are in everything that you do and how worthy you are of our praise. And how I continue to take my, my mind off of myself and look more on you all the time. And as I do that, then I can see the wonder of who you are. And I can have humility and I can have unity with my brothers and sisters as we do this together. That's our goal. That's what we strive for. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be blessed today. Have a great day in the Lord.